All right, you guys hear it all the time. The typical, if you like this episode, please rate us, subscribe to us, leave a comment on iTunes or Spotify, wherever. Well, it really does make a difference for this podcast. We're small, we're trying to get bigger, and all of this feeds the algorithm so that iTunes or Spotify or Pandora, wherever you find us at, will rate us higher and higher with the more likes and comments that you guys leave. And always, if you guys find value in these episodes, please leave us a comment on the episode or on the show uh, page. And the best way to help us is to share it off. So again, thank you. And we will talk to you soon. Today on After the Battle Campfire, I had the pleasure of talking to Christine Martinez, founder of Women for Her Nonprofit. She enlisted in the Army in 2005 and deployed to Iraq in 2010 after becoming a signals intelligence specialist, where she had to go outside the wire to outline bases via convoy and helicopter on a routine basis. Upon returning home, she was accepted to the U.S. Army Drill Instructor School, where she served as a DI until she decided to leave service. In late 2020, she stood up Women For Her, a nonprofit dedicated to helping women who suffered trauma. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of After the Battle Campfire. One of these days, I'm going to get used to that voice. So, uh, sounds like a, a, a off version of Alexa. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're back, and I'm talking to Christine Martinez. I met her on Clubhouse through a mutual friend of ours, Joe Palacios, who has been on the show and is a business partner of mine in Maxwell Soaps. Christine, welcome. Hi, how's it going? Great, great. So Christine runs Women For Her. That's a, um, how would you describe it? So we are a nonprofit organization that helps women who have gone through traumatic or abusive situations um, find and receive the care that they need to recover from those situations. Um, because a lot of people just don't know where to go for the resources. Right. And um, you have a military background, of course. Yes. And um, let's start with your origin story. So where are you from originally? Uh, I am originally from Titusville, Florida. So if you know where the Kennedy Space Center is. Oh, okay. Yeah. And yeah. like right there. So were, did you grow up in a military family? or? <sighs> No, not really. Uh, my grandpa, my abuelo, um, I'm Puerto Rican. So my abuelo, um, he was a retired first sergeant from what I believe, but we didn't really find out about that until he passed away. And oh, wow. both of my parents did three years in the army. Okay. So growing up, uh, did you have a desire to go into the military or was it something that came on later? When it came on, when I joined ROTC, like NJ ROTC, the Navy uh, version uh, in high school. Okay. So, um, you know, I did not, and I apologize. I didn't do a lot of background. What branch did you end up joining? Uh, I was in the army. Okay. So you had a uh, Navy ROTC or junior ROTC. And what yeah. made you, what made you ultimately decide to choose army? Well, um, I wanted a challenge as far as like the physical aspect, um, but I also wanted the vast uh, job opportunities. And each branch has their specialties, but the army has such a wide array of options um, when you decide to choose a career field. 
So did you go in at um, 18 or right after high school or did you do some college? Yeah, I, I joined right after high school, like two months after. Um, I went in as a PFC because <laughs> oh, of nice. my ROTC uh, <laughs> background. So um, what year was that? 2005. Okay, so um, let's jump backwards a little bit. So 2001 happened and we had 9-11. Did that affect your decision to want to go into the military? Um, actually, I don't think that really affected my my reasoning as to like, I think at that point I had already decided I wanted to join the military because I was already in ROTC for like that whole that school year. Um, and I think it didn't sway me against it. Um, I think it just kept me, hey, I need to to do things right. Oh, okay. That makes total sense. So um, knowing that you were going to join the military during a time of war, did how did your parents take that? Um, well, when I left for the military, my dad cried, um, <laughs> which was surprising to me because I really had only seen him cry one other time, and that was when my abuelo had passed away. So um my mother, uh, I mean, she was, they were okay with it. They were both fine with it. So I guess um, emotionally, maybe they, they internalized it, but they didn't really express it to me right. besides being proud of my decision. Right. So um, let's see, Florida used to seeing rockets go up in the sky and then you get onto, a, I'm trying to think of where boot camp is for the army. Cause I know you have a few. Yeah, there is a few for me because I chose um, my first MOS because I actually had two when I was in, but my first one, I was a 42 Fox, which is human resource information system specialist. Um, and I think that went away after a few years, but um, it was Fort Jackson. So they took us to a bus in um, to Jacksonville and we did all, all the initial steps at MEPS. And then um, from MEPS, they put us in like a hotel for the night and then they took us on a bus to Fort Jackson. Oh, okay. So how far away is Fort Jackson from Jacksonville? Um, I wanna say six to seven hours. Is that still in Florida or is that in Georgia? Oh, no, no. Uh, Fort Jackson is in Columbia, South Carolina. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, that, I'm really bad with army basic. <laughs> It's okay. I, I know that there's a lot going on in like uh, South and North Carolina, some in Georgia. So um, what was your, what was your MEPS process? Like, cause I, I don't think I've talked to someone who was an enlisted female. I've talked to a couple officers, but not a uh, female enlisted. So I actually had two parts because when I first applied and was at MEPS and I went to the medical portion, they did their little test. I actually have had open heart surgery when I was four years old. And when I first did the medical exam, they actually denied me uh, entry into the military. Um, okay. And my recruiter was like, oh, okay, well, they denied you. There's nothing we can do. And I was like, there's nothing you can do. So they denied me for open heart surgery that I had when I was four years old. And I was like, I was 
star on track. I played soccer my entire life. Like I was an all-star athlete. Like really you're going to deny me because I had open heart surgery and there's nothing wrong with me. Um, and what I did is I wrote my congressman and within a week of me writing the letter after my mom like had looked over it, I got a waiver. Oh, good. Good. I, yeah, I'm never seen anyone have a, something that big and was able to go in. I know that I know the military is really, really weird about stuff that even happens as a child. I got, um, I had an appendectomy when I was still in pre one year old and had to come up with paperwork and waivers for that. It's weird what they are willing to take in. Well, and, and they, when I was going into mess, like, um, they said, okay, well, we're going to have to have bring you back. Like this was before I had got denied. And they were like, what we're going to need is you go to your primary care doctor and get, um, waivers and basically the same thing and get, have them do like EKG. And my doctors like went all the way to, as to giving me like the stress tests again. And I was running on the treadmill talking like me and you are right now. And the doctor's <laughs> like, um, I think you're fine. You're talking pretty normal. I was like, oh, I'm not supposed to be talking while I'm running. <laughs> and, um, uh, my mom was there laughing and, um, I mean, cause I was, I ran like uh, cross country. I ran the miles in track. I ran 400s. I mean, I was fast. I, I'm still fast, but probably not as fast <laughs> as I used to be. <laughs> Little did you know, a few short months later, you would be running and singing. It would just be called Cadence. Oh, yes. <laughs> so um, talk to me about what it was like getting off the bus at uh, boot camp when it all became real. So this might sound crazy, but for me, it was fun because <laughs> <laughs> when I was in um, NJROTC, I went to a, they call it like a mini boot camp. Um, so I had already experienced like a little bit of what boot camp was going to be like, but it, of course it was like Navy version. And um, uh, it, they were way nicer too. Like we did sailing <laughs> in the Navy version. <laughs> Um, so when we get off the bus, um, of course I can always remember my drill sergeant's voice. Um, it was like raspy, like, Hey, private, like, <laughs> was it the stereotypical, uh, movie drill sergeant voice? Um, kind it, of like major pain, but not yeah. like exactly. It was like, not as high pitched as his, but definitely very similar. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, when I went to boot camp for the Navy way back when we had three, so we had a, there was a male, female one in Orlando. Then you had San Diego and um, Great Lakes, which were both male only. How was, how were you guys set up? Cause I know the army has been a little bit more integrated before the Navy closed them all down and put just one boot camp up in Great Lakes. Yeah. Like um, for Fort Jackson, it's very integrated. So it's both men and women. Um, we do, I think, I think there might be one still that's just men and that's like more, uh, I mean, actually they might be starting to get the women there since women can go into, um, uh, and I think it's Fort Seal, I think is the one that was primarily men. Um, but now that women can go into infantry, I think they're allowing women up there too. But um, mine was integrated for basic and for AIT. So were you guys, um 
I'm assuming you guys were broken out into companies. So was your company both male and female, or was it just that the you there were male companies and female companies? Oh no, it was it was combined. Okay, as far I must I will make the bold assumption that as far as living space though, female oh that was separate. Space, yes. Yeah. So uh, how was it getting used to all of your fellow soldiers and rack mates as you were? Oh, well, okay. So coming from basically having that, that NROTC background from high school, I kind of already had the instilled, like, cause even when I went to that little mini uh, boot camp, we had, they taught us how to do beds. They taught us how to keep our spaces clean and how to hang our stuff. So I already had almost everything knowledge, basic knowledge. Um, of course, there were some things I learned because the Army is different than the Navy. Um, but I mean, I had the marching skills and everything else. The difference, biggest difference was instead of being in like a two-man room, I was in a huge bay with 50 other women and, um, you know... Some people know how to clean themselves. Some people don't. <laughs> some people know how to clean up after themselves and some people don't. And some people don't want to learn. So, you know, from, from my perspective, I can tell you that is a sex genderless uh, experience oh, yeah. <laughs> all around. Oh, I know. Cause later on, actually my last three years of the military, I was a drill sergeant. So oh, wow. <laughs> I okay. saw everything. So this is going to get interesting. Um, so what, uh, what was it like just being around so many females? I, you said you ran track. So you, I'm assuming you always around females for a short period of time, but now you're with 50 other females, 24 seven. So actually it was kind of, it was weird because for me, I've always been that athlete. I always kind of kept my head in down, did what I had to do, didn't really have to worry, but I had to learn that it wasn't about me. It was about us and we all had to succeed to be able to move on. And, um, there was times where like, I would be trying to motivate cause I'm all about motivation and I would be trying to yell at my battle buddies, like, come on, let's do this. And they'd be like, no, leave me alone or be quiet. <laughs> and in my head, I'm like, come on. Cause this is what they want. They want us to like work together. Can't you guys see that? And, and so many times, like, especially when we would get in trouble and we'd be in the pits, cause back then, like you could get like smoked and, you know, there not be any repercussions for the drill sergeants, but we'd be in the pits crawling, low crawling and high crawling and stuff. And they were volleyball pits. So we crawled from one end to the other end in the sand. Oh, and, damn. oh yeah. <laughs> and, um, my battle buddies would be like quitting and they wouldn't be doing it, but the drill sergeants were just trying to get us to work as a team and all go through. And people were just like giving up and they weren't trying and all that kind of stuff. And I was yelling, I was like, come on, let's go. Come on guys. And of course, everybody's tired, annoyed and hot and sticky. And now you have sand all over you too. Nobody wants to hear anything I'm saying. So for me, it was like, how do I get everybody to understand that all they want us to do is work as a team? So it was yeah. difficult. <laughs> so um, I always have to ask this when we talk about people's boot camps. At some point in time, 
they take you to a little, we'll call it a shed, a room, and give you these masks to put on. Unlike the mask that we wear now, but um, <laughs> with a canister on it and the gas mask. close the door. <laughs> How was that experience for you? So that was not fun because they force you to open your eyes and you don't want to open your eyes. That's like the last thing you want to do because you're already breathing the stuff in. And then on top of that, they make you like they made us do the soldier's creed in the gas chamber. And it was even worse when I, when I, uh, almost 10 years later, when I went in again as a drill sergeant and I had to do it and, oh, it was, it was just no fun at all. My <laughs> eyes were burning. My face was probably swollen. I couldn't even see anything. I was out and like, you know, your whole, everything is coming out of your nose, eyes and mouth. <laughs> but your sinuses felt so great afterwards. Yeah. After you cleared everything away. <laughs> <laughs> Did you guys have anyone try to bolt for the door? Oh, of course. Yeah. I remember, I remember our drill sergeant, like putting his arm out and like clotheslining a guy <laughs> like flat out, like, cause he was trying to run out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the fun of the gas chamber. I, oh, yes. I don't, I, okay. I'm going to admit this. I do miss it a little bit. <laughs> Not the gas chamber. <laughs> I, I really do. I I've been gassed so many times in the military. It's not even funny. And so it's like, uh, it's that time of the year again. I should probably be getting gas now. Oh, that was your job, right? Well, I was a corpsman, but I just happened to run a uh, nuclear, biological, and chemical. I was like the one of the guys MVP for that with chamber. the C for the CBs. So yeah. we got I got gas quite regularly when when I was with them, and then with the Marines, it happens more often than not. So at some point in time, you guys go out in the field. How was your first field evolution out there? Um, so the field was crazy. Like, I remember falling asleep when we're in the lines, like in we like they laid us out in our little uh I can't even remember words and now I feel like I've never been in the military. <laughs> the little pits um that you your, your foxholes. Yeah, your foxholes. Um, <laughs> I remember falling asleep. I remember like um, oh, the worst of the worst is filling the sandbags for the, the safety spots. Like, oh my gosh, that was the worst because they didn't have anything else for us to do for that day. So, and they didn't want to take us around doing training. So they would have us fill sandbags for our, um, uh, the stops where the cars are everything, you know? Uh, yeah. So did, um, how, again, I'm going from the perspective of not having a boot camp or, well, I guess we did have field med with females, but for, for you guys, were you completely kept separate from the males then even during field exercises? They kind of kept us separate, but we were kind of together. Like, um, the way they did it is they had, zones so females were zoned in a certain area and then our circle was um that was where our fire point was and then the males were on the other side but that was only for sleeping um and then when we wake up we have to take our tent down put everything back up in our bag and everything we can't just leave it up and that way if we move then we are ready to move oh okay okay that makes sense so when, um, when you're finally done with this, you graduate, how was the graduation process for you? Did your parents come up? Did you get to do the big smiley thing? 
Yeah, for, okay, so uh, my basic was nine weeks, and then we went to AIT, which was our job training. So for my basic, um, my parents came to see me graduate, which was super awesome. Like, and then one of my best friends came, or actually two of my good friends, um, my best friend and a really good friend from high school came. And um, so I was super happy. And um, we went out to eat and, and I tried to wear my contacts. <laughs> and in basic and AIT, the military, they don't let you wear those no. yet. And so, because I had the huge, like mine were like, I swear, uh, a fourth of an inch thick bottle cap glasses. Um, and so I tried to wear my contacts and my sister, like they, my little sister, she's three years younger than me at the time. So she's like 16 um, or about to be. And she's looking around at all the other soldiers that, and this is at like our dinner table after the graduation. And um, she's looking around and she's like, Christine, where are your glasses? And she says it really loud. Mm. And my drill sergeant's like, yeah, Private Martinez, where are your glasses? And I was like, drill sergeant, please. And no, it didn't work. I had to put my glasses on. And um, so I'm walking around with these thick glasses that make my eyes look even bigger because they're like zooming in on my glasses. But before we did like, I don't know, like anywhere from five to 10 rehearsals, like, but I made, um, I had high PT score. So I got to be like one of the people that were on the stage getting called up and get a certificate and award from the drill sergeant and the chain of command and all that stuff. So nice. Nice. So were you, um, because of your ROTC background, did they put you in a leadership position for your, Oh yeah. I was in a lot of the different positions. Like I had to convince them because I ended up getting in trouble in basic. Um, I had uh, got in trouble and they made me watch one of the other privates that that ended up being on like uh, uh, suicide watch. And so I had to stay with her. Well, then the next day I had to beg the drill sergeant to let me be the platoon sergeant for a, a leadership position because I knew how to march. And every time they put someone up, they would mess up one of the commands. And they were like, none of you can march. Da, da, da. I like begged them, please, please give me a chance. And like, I marched them. But because I still had to do like the overnights with that other private, um, because I had gotten in trouble. Well, they didn't want to keep me in the position. So after I marched us to chow, and then we came back, they were like, get out of there, Martinez. And I was like, oh. I was like, you know, I did good. <laughs> you know, uh, was that early on or was that later in bootcamp? Oh, no, that was later. Like, I would say after we did our second or third, maybe even after the last FTX that we went, because we go on, we did, I think, three, three FTXs. Um, and then we did our final one. So it was, it was before our final FTX. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, I didn't even ask and I apologize. So what, like the, the Navy has battle stations, the Marines have the crucible. I think the air force learns how to tie their ties, right? What is the final, um, big event the, that makes you a soldier in the drill instructor's eyes? Victory Forge. <laughs> That's our final FTX is the, <laughs> 
the big, you are now a soldier because you've completed everything. Of course, like everything up to that is like, oh, now you're going to be a soldier after you do the big events in between. But the Victory Forge is it because when you come back, they do like a huge ceremony, um, like even a fire pit in the middle and you all get to don your berets because you've been wearing your little um, BDU caps at the time. Um, now they're ACU or ASU or whatever they're called now. Um, so yeah. So they, was that like a multi-day event or multi or? So the final FTX is, I wanna say it is a week long and it consists of a lot of the trainings that you've learned up to that point. Um, uh, you do missions, um, you have goals that are set throughout the weeks. Um, you manage different firing points, different uh, checkpoints. And then um, when you come back, it's a huge march. It's the longest march. It's supposed to be the longest march that you march um, while you're in uh, basic training. Um, so usually it's like either four, five mile march supposed to be. Sometimes it's like two miles, but because they know you're tired and you're ready to get back. Um, but because you've been out there all week, you're super tired and you're ready to get back. So. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. So um, last bootcamp question for you here. You had mentioned that uh, Fort Sill was more geared towards the infantry. So is each boot camp geared toward, towards like a, a MOS? Are they all the same or are they like same structure or are they all different? So they're very similar in structure. Um, it's red, white, and blue phase for basic training. Red phase is your initial training. Like the the drill sergeants are supposed to be there all 24 seven, all around, all the time. I mean, of course, besides when you're sleeping, then you do have a drill sergeant there, but um, like from wake up to go to sleep, the drill sergeant is there. Um, and you as a soldier, like you're always getting, like you don't make a mistake because you're gonna get yelled at um, in red phase. In blue phase uh, or white phase is kind of like the middle, um, it's where the drill sergeants kind of lighten up a little bit because right now they're in that point where they've already broken you. So now it's time to build you back up, to train you, to teach you the skills you need to be a soldier. And then the blue phase is that, okay, you're getting ready to graduate. You're getting ready to become a soldier. You've done everything up until this point um, where now we need to fine tune all those little details. We need to make sure you can shoot good. Um, get everything else. And that's where the victory forge comes in. Oh, okay. And then when you go to like Fort seal, they also have like, I want to say it's like gold black. Um, I don't know the other phases that they're called over there, but instead of going 90 days for basic and 90 days for AIT for someone like me, who was human resources over there, infantry is like all, um, 11 or 12 months or weeks, um, I think it's 12 weeks, uh, they go basic straight into their AIT all combined, but oh, it's okay. still phased out. And then after the blue phase, they go to black, gold, or whatever. Oh, okay. So was your AIT then at the same, at the same location? So my AIT, yes. It was at the same installation, 
but it was at a different uh, location. So when you show up for AIT, you're a private first class at that point in time, right? Yes. So you walked out of boot camp, went down the road. Now you're PFC. How did uh, how'd your swagger change? Um, I still felt like I knew everything. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, as at that point, I was like more proud because we had finished basic. Um, and also when you graduate and you go to AIT at Fort Jackson, if you have family there, because usually you graduate on like a Friday and if you have family there, then they can sign you out to sign you into your, your AIT. So you can get the weekend off and you can go get signed in on that Monday. Um, oh, nice. So I had my family sign me out, but my family didn't stay. And I stayed with my best friend and uh, other friend. And we all just kind of hung out for the weekend and then signed in on that Monday. So um, how long was it? How long was the HR school? Uh, it was nine weeks. Okay. So what, what do you guys learn in the, the HR school? So all about the information systems that are being operated on, um, how to navigate through the system, how to um, input data for like the soldier's records, their history, any kind of awards that a soldier got, um, how to navigate the system on uh, duty stations. Um, because as a HR rep, you can look up duty stations for a soldier and tell them what's available. Um, but also kind of tell them, hey, these are going to be opening up. Um, I mean, it's a lot to do with the records and, and the soldier data. Right. So I know um, we have uh, personnel men who do very similar things. And I, I was curious if they were a combined school or not. Probably not. So after you finished with the HR school, did you go to a unit, a base? Where did you end up after that? My first duty station was in Camp Corner in Yongsung, Korea. I was assigned to 8th Army Infantry Division, um, and it was an HR. Initially, when I got to the installation, I would they take you at to the um, it's a hotel, and at, I can't even remember the name of the hotel, but it's the one on uh, Camp Corner, Yongsung, um, in Seoul, Korea. And they have the in-processing on the bottom floor. Well, um, I got assigned to the in-processing uh, administration department. But then, then like three days later, because I was a 42 Fox, I got moved to 8th Army um, Infantry Division because a 42 Fox like there's a 42 Alpha, which is the human resource um, specialist. And then there's the 42 Fox, which is what I was, which was a human resource information systems management specialist. So while I learned and I knew how to do all that data and the um, record updates for soldiers, I was supposed to be in charge of managing the systems, querying, like if anybody does any kind of um, changes to a report, if they do it in invalid, like falsely, then we could go back and figure out who did that. So, so like and auditing. then we also, what's that? Oh, I'm sorry. So, so like auditing. Yeah, auditing. Um, or um, we also assigned people to different units. So we did that. Oh, okay. 
So how was that? I did not expect you to say Korea. How was that going from Florida to boot camp, uh, MOS school, and now here's a plane ticket and have a nice flight over to Korea? So I was excited because I had never really, like the only place I really traveled when I was like younger and living in Florida was to Connecticut for a soccer camp. Um, so for me, I was like, oh yeah, I get to go somewhere and I'm super excited. So I wasn't like worried at all, but I mean, and it was funny cause I mean, here I am, a lot of people talk about being, I had turned 19 in basic. So being a 19 year old kid just left home, went to basic. Everybody's like, oh, you weren't worried or scared or anything. No, I was just excited to see new things. So it was, it was really fun. So um, did they get, did they just give you um, a ticket and say, here's a plane <laughs> yeah. for, for I mean, for the international travel, it just seems. Well, and, and actually, um, basically, yeah, they, they said, here's your orders. You're going to Korea. Then they took us to um, the, I don't care. I don't remember what it was called. I don't think it was the MWR. I think they took us to a location similar to like the USO at the airport, but it was like on the installation and they schedule all the flights. Um, Cause as a soldier, um, you don't have to pay for your flight. They right. pay for it right. unless you want to like go somewhere else in between. And so they took us there. I talked to a lady, she scheduled our flight um, or cause there was like, I think there was like six of us going. Okay. And so you weren't completely solo. Oh yeah, yeah. No, some of my my AIT buddies went. It was actually a good amount of us. Oh, okay, so you get over there and, um, like you said, you're expecting to be in Seoul doing the in processing stuff. When they moved you to Eighth Army, did they take you out of Seoul then? I don't know very well uh, the layout of Korea's bases. So <laughs> no, actually, um, the way uh, Camp Pointer worked, it was like there was the in processing was up on top of a hill. And that was considered um, Seoul, I guess. Uh, then down the hill is Camp Coiner. So Camp Coiner is like the back of that installation. And basically all I did was move from up the hill to down the hill. Oh, okay. And going down the hill, did uh, how, did, how was it being with the infantry at that time? Oh, it was fine because I really lived like five steps from where I work now, instead of having to go up a hill, especially at that time, I had never really dealt with snow. That was the first time I ever saw snow and we got oh, there. That's right. <laughs> we got there in January. So um, when I walked up the hill um, for like one of my first for week days of reporting, I s slipped on some black ice and I just laughed and fell. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I was like, how do I walk on this? <laughs> So how was the, um, how was it being a female attached to an, I know it was at the vision level, but still with the infantry unit at that time? Um, I mean, actually, I didn't really think about the differences between female and male, um, because there were so many women in the HR area that were in my, uh, section. So the only thing that sucked was doing like the field trainings because, while even though we're HR, they still want to make sure that we do the field training and we do everything that everybody else does. 
So if, if the division was to have gone to Iraq or Afghanistan, would they have brought you guys as far yes. as that? Like, I know some units leave admin behind, not just uh, female or male, but just that's like how they work is. Oh, yeah. No, like um, really uh, when it came to deployments, I have deployed. But when it came to our deployments, um, the way that the army worked was they would leave a small team behind, but it would be like maybe a 20, 25 person team. And it'd be someone from like each section to make sure that they can manage and communicate with the people downrange. Oh, okay. Okay. That makes sense. So while you were in Korea, how, uh, how'd you get along with Korea? Oh, I loved it. Like um, my, some of my favorite spots and, and locations were there. Like um, the MWR was great because they always gave us like um, soldier shows, especially with boss, um, the better opportunities for single soldiers um and uh they gave we had i i want to say we've had at least two or three free concerts that they brought people onto the base to give us concerts um i learned how to play pool um in korea um and uh then we went to there was these festivals like one was like this pentaport rock festival and i saw the black eyed peas in concert um nice. which was like at the time my favorite um band and then uh we went to the seafood festival and like you know those mini i don't know what they're called but they're the mini uh motorcycles they're the tiny ones oh yeah yeah the, the really really small ones yeah well i was like riding on one of those with a friend and we were going in like little circles and stuff and it was like the fourth of july so fireworks <laughs> were everywhere <laughs> um, how, how were the locals towards you guys oh they were really nice of course like when it came to like buying stuff they always tried to get over on you because you don't know the language but I, what i did is we had katusas um, Katusas were Korean augmentees to the U.S. soldiers, and um, they had they had a requirement. The Korean soldiers have a requirement that they have to serve two years in the military, and they can always serve longer, but they have to. It's mandatory for them to serve two years. And so what I did is I would make friends with them, and I would started like learning the language. I asked them to write down. I would write a sentence, and I'd ask them to write it down. So like even now I still remember like Anyaseo is like hello, Komsamida um, is like how are you doing? Um, I mean I I understand and remember some words but not like everything. <laughs> did you did you get pretty uh, good though while you were over there? Oh yeah, like I mean I loved it because it made it made it easier to interact with the locals because they felt like you were trying versus just not caring. Um, because you're in their space. Yeah. Did you guys um, get any in briefing um, culturally what to expect when you got over there? In the, the, when you guys oh, yeah, they up? do. What is it called? Um, I can't remember what it's called, but they do like a little like two day like session on like, hey, this is the culture. This is the, how the Koreans. This is like some basic words. The, those kind of things. So while well, you were in Korea, um, what, 2006 to, were you, was that a full, like? Three it was years? just 2006. I okay. Was there. So for that year, was there any uptick with the, the North? Did you guys feel um, any tensions? No, I do remember visiting the DMZ, which is the demilitarized zone. Um, 
and we like looked through the little binoculars to see North Korea and all. I mean, yeah, it's North, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and like you see their soldiers standing there and the guys, when we're in the brief, there's actually soldiers in the room where they do all their meetings and they tell you, don't step over the tape because they have tape on the ground. Because if you step over the tape, I mean, they tell you they'll kill you because um, that's maybe what they're supposed to tell you. I don't know if they really would or not, but I didn't step over the tape. <laughs> Basically, you just ended yourself up in North Korea. Now it's a whole international incident or some crazy yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> so where did you go after Korea? Uh, I actually was luckily able to get a um, consecutive overseas tour and I went to Germany. Oh, wow. So you're hitting all the major spots. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so did, were you able to come home to Florida and see friends and family before heading out to Germany? Yeah. So it was funny because they, they, you know, the military pays your, for your flight. Well, what I did is I asked them to uh, fly me to Germany from Korea, but I wanted them to um, delay my flight two times. Once uh, in Hawaii and once in Florida. So they delayed my flight in Hawaii for two days so that I could stay in Hawaii for a couple of days. And I had never been before. So I was like, ah, oh, definitely. And then um, they delayed my flight in Florida for like a week. And then I flew to Germany in January. <laughs> so how was it being home for that, that week after, you know, I, I think in some ways we grew up pretty quick after boot camp. Um, oh, it was so fun. <laughs> I went, it was funny because I went to play pool with my best friend and um, she was like, oh my gosh, you have so many muscles in your back. And I was <laughs> like, what are you talking about? But it, from all the push-ups you do, you're yeah. only. <laughs> so I have many of friends who uh, were army and who were infantry MOSs. And there was this thing where they talk about um, when you show up to your first battalion, it's, you know, you could be a PFC and you're still standing at parade rest talking to the corporal or the private one is talking to the PFC at parade rest. Did <laughs> yeah. that carry over into the support rank or the support MOSs as well? Oh, yeah. Like, um, I mean, you had to like it, the for the army, it's like they push for it. So they want to keep that discipline through your entire career. So um, that definitely carried over. Oh, okay. So there, there was corporals smoking PFCs and PFCs smoking privates. Uh, well, it, as far as smoking, it was different. Like they didn't smoke you as much. It was more, I'm going to write you up because the more times that you get written up, the bigger the case is built against you. Oh, okay. Okay. So that was the HR world as write-ups instead of smokings. Yes. Yay. I, I don't know which one I want less. Well, actually, <laughs> when I was in Korea, um, I they thought I was a slacker because I would finish my work very fast. And um, I would get done before lunchtime. But then after lunch, it would look like I wasn't doing anything because I would ask my coworker, hey, what are you doing? Or I'd try to figure out what they were doing, you know? And so it looked like I wasn't doing anything. 
And so I had to start writing everything down that I did for the day, even the stuff that they asked me because I would finish it so fast. And so they ended up having to give me extra things to do. Like I became a boss uh, representative for the unit. Um, I would get like additional extra little tasks to go do because they had to keep me busy because they thought I was a slacker and they would write me up for that. So I definitely understand the write-ups. Yeah. (laughs) So did any of that come back later in your career to help you out? uh, Yes, actually. um, (laughs) When my first, my first duty station, one of the NCOs that I worked with that used to write me up all the time, I ran into him at drill sergeant school and we were the same rank. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because I was going to say in the Navy, we call that collateral duties. Uh, (laughs) When you get past E4, you start picking up more and more collateral duties, which is exactly what you're describing. Um, Oh, yeah. The the MWR rep or... uh, Additional duties for us. Yeah. Yeah. So inadvertently, they were setting you up for a really positive thing while they thought they were trying to get you. Oh yeah. And like, for me, it was better because I was finishing so quick. Like I, I'm like, I call myself a fixer. You give me something to do. I'm going to finish it and I'm going to do it right now. Um, I don't wait. I don't procrastinate because I don't like holding on to anything. I like just it being done and out of the way. Makes sense. Um, So you get to Germany and you've now had a year in Korea where you've Learn very carefully that if you don't look busy, they're going to make you busy. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where'd you go in Germany? So stationed, I was in Wiesbaden. Um, actually, initially, I was in Darmstadt, Germany. But what ended up happening was um, I was a part of an intelligence um, uh, unit. And the brigade moved to Wiesbaden. So after a year, we moved to Wiesbaden. We still had some uh, uh, specialists and certain uh, MOSs that worked at the Darmstadt location because it was a secure facility. But the rest of us worked at the secure facility in Wiesbaden. So was Wiesbaden anywhere near um, Ramstein or? Um, I would say it was like 45 minute drive to Ramstein. Okay, okay. I was just curious because uh, the last time I was in Germany, I was going through Landstuhl. Let's put it oh, okay. that way on a fun flight home. Yeah, I like I, Ramstein was good. I mean, I traveled a lot because I was in Germany for three years. So. Oh, OK. So is that one of the benefits about doing that MOS, the HR, is that you can be assigned one minute to a in-country, in-processing unit, the next to an army division and then to an intel? Oh, unit? like... Um, it's not just that MOS, it's all the MOSs in the military, like for majority, like you could be, I mean, I think there's probably a couple that MOSs that you would be assigned to specific areas only. Yeah. So how was your time with the Intel unit? Oh, it was good. I learned so much. Um, I was in, because I was the only, yeah, I was the only 42 Fox with the unit. So I was the only one who dealt with like all the data, the auditing, everything. Um, and I didn't realize that actually until I just told you now that I was the only 42 Fox in that unit. Um, oh, wow. But thinking about it, I 
have zoned in on it because they always asked me to do those things. And I didn't understand why I was the only one they asked to do that um, because nobody else knew how. And um, then we moved, we had two different offices on the, the, there was a installation where we lived and then there was the installation where we worked. So um, the installation where we lived, we had an office there and then we had one where we worked too. And so I would have to trans like rotate which office I was at because our warrant officer was at the one where we lived and she needed me to do a lot of things for her uh, specifically. So I basically worked directly for her and directly for my um, senior NCO. So were you a specialist by this time or were you? Oh, yes. So did you end up, um, did you guys do any out of country stuff with that unit? Uh, not from Germany. No, it was all in Germany. So how was your time with the Germans? Oh, um, I mean, I still learned like they had an in-processing thing where you learn some German. Um, I learned some German as far as interacting with them. I didn't really interact with them a lot, except for when I went to play soccer because I played on two men's teams and then I also played on a women's team but a lot of the team members were not just German um they were like uh English teachers or other foreigners that had come to Germany to um instruct or teach or have worked there so um I was very active <laughs> yeah I mean three how how'd you do three soccer teams <laughs> Oh, well, I love soccer, um, but the games, like, it was more like pickup games, um, and they would ask me to play on the games, because as a female um, going to play with men, you always kind of have to prove yourself that you can play, because otherwise you'll really just sit out and be like a, a sub, so once they learned that I could play, then I played all the time with them, um, and then actually in Germany, I, I, I got, uh, I had applied to go professionally with the armed forces. And I went for that year, it was 2007, 2007, I played for the armed forces professional women's team. Oh, okay. So let's talk about that. I, I didn't even know that. So <laughs> let's start with the simple question. How did you find out about the armed forces professional team? Well, I actually don't remember if someone told me or if I just was looking it up one time I think someone was talking about um a man was talking about like a professional like football or basketball team and I was like I wonder if they have soccer and I went on there's an army website that you have like all of the professional sports and I started looking into it and I noticed that they didn't have an army professional women's soccer team it's all the branches combined into one and so you have to apply. You basically, you tell them all your history. Uh, it's kind of like a resume, but for sports. Um, and they call it a CV. And you give them all your information, where you played, how long you played. Um, and then if you make it, then you get selected. It goes to your chain of command and you get orders. And then they fly you to Fort Bragg to try out. So um, had you not done the military do you think you would have tried for a soccer scholarship oh yes definitely okay okay uh so was you do this what's 
what's your chain of command say when you say, Hey, uh, I got this really crazy idea. Oh, they weren't excited. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't excited because they didn't want to lose me. I mean, especially since I was the only 42 Fox, like, uh, they weren't excited that I was going to play soccer, but I was on orders. So really I they were basically didn't have a choice. <laughs> so, so no one had to sign off on it before you applied. Um, I mean, technically no, but I mean, they could have not let me go. Yeah. It just wouldn't have gone over well. So how far into this, um, Germany time was it that you got selected to go to the trials? Oh, that was like not a year. I don't even think it was a year. I think it was like six months. Oh, wow. Okay. So it was pretty early. Yeah. So you get selected, you go to the trials at, I think you said Fort Bragg. Yes. Fort Bragg. How were the trials? Oh, so fun. Um, so like, even during the trials, they treat you like you're already a professional athlete. Like you can get massages at their, um, sports, uh, gym, uh, you go there, you just schedule a massage and they give you the sports massages you have your um, physical therapist if you need it sports injuries all that kind of stuff they tape you up and you don't have to do it yourself it was it was pretty awesome but I love the sport so for me it was just nothing but fun so was it I'm assuming it was a male female team no or it was not, all not, female I meant I said that wrong I meant uh, a male team and then a female team uh well the men men don't try out at Bragg they oh, go okay. somewhere else it was just women oh okay so um how many women were there do you think I, I oh I would that, say I would say at least 60 because they had to make um they had to make three cuts to get down to 20. okay so all this all again making the assumption you do the tryouts then they fly you back they don't tell you on the spot oh no you're if you make it you stay oh um, you do okay yeah, you don't go back. And then you just travel. Like we went to play, I mean, you play college teams um, when you're playing. You don't play like the USA team. It's it's like college level is the way that the Army is. Oh, okay. So um, with that, so you're actually pulled away from your command for a full year? Yeah. Oh, okay. So did you ever uh, travel outside of the United States playing or was it always just inside the United States? Um. I mean, I played outside, but uh, it wasn't like it, it wasn't anywhere I hadn't been. Like, I mean, I played in Germany, um, oh, okay. but with them, we mostly stayed in. Oh, OK, that, that's why I was kind of curious was if it was if you were playing other uh, country services. Oh, other... no. OK, so what was the what was your favorite game that you played and where? Um. I know actually one of the favorite ones was one of the first ones. Um, and it was against the, um, the Tar Heels. Um, we, and really it was a pickup game. Uh, <laughs> like it was, okay, we're going to meet here. It's not going to be for like any, like, uh, you win or I win, but of course everybody keeps the score. So of course um, that was probably one of my favorite ones. And honestly, I can't remember all the details because it was a very long time ago. <laughs> No, no, no worries. So after you do get done with the team, which is pretty cool, I didn't realize that uh, you would get pulled away for a full year. You go back to your unit. 
how was the return back to your unit after being gone for a year? Well, for me, like I didn't really feel like a difference. It was kind of like the same, like, like I had never left, like I picked back up where I left off. Um, but I think maybe they expected more because I ended up doing a lot more trainings for the like, um, uh, coworkers and all that kind of stuff because of the knowledge that I had. And that way they didn't have to pull like senior specialists from other like battalions and companies out of country to come and do those trainings. Oh, okay. So after, um, after you finished your time in Germany, where'd you end up? So after Germany, I went to Fort Hood, Texas. I am so sorry. <laughs> it actually wasn't bad. Said the, actually, first, said the first soldier I've ever met. Well, actually, before I went there, I went to reclass. Um, I changed my MOS from 42 Fox to 35 November, which is a signal intel analyst. Oh, okay. So I went to... Um, what is the installation? It's uh, San Angelo, Texas, but it's an Air Force base. Yes, I, I know of San. Um, there's a, I forgot what it's called, uh, a Navy detachment for their intel people too over there. Yeah. I forgot. It's yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, um, that's where their AIT is for that that MOS. So I went there to reclass. Okay, so how was that as a joint? Uh, was it a joint facility? Or a joint yeah. class at that time? Yeah, it was. I mean, there was every branch. Uh, I remember there's Marines there. There's um, Air Force. There was Navy, I remember. Um, so it was definitely joint. Um, I mean, there was more Air Force than any other branch, but definitely uh, multiple branches there. So doing the signals intel, um, that's basically, without getting into too much weird details, um, dealing with like radio traffic and stuff like that? Yeah. So you get to Fort Hood, um, which you oddly enjoyed. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, I think I'd probably enjoy Fort Hood more than San Angelo. But that being said, your time there, how was that? I mean, we all know from today's news, Fort Hood's pretty infamous for some weird shit happening. So when I was in San Angelo, that's when that major did that shooting at oh. the... Um, the reintegration for the soldiers for the deployment. Um, so when I got stationed there, it was kind of like high, everybody's levels were super high because on high alert, because you know, that had just happened the year prior. Um, and so, because I was at San Angelo for I think 16 months. It was, it was a long school. So right. I was there. Yeah. It was a, it was a, a PCS change, a uh, change of station because the, the school was so long. And then on top of that, like say if a soldier, the school was very hard. That was one of the hardest schools I've ever been to. If you fail one test one time, you can get restarted. And then if you restart and you fail another test, you have to change your MOS. You can't even stay in that MOS anymore. Is that one of those, um, restart at any point in the class or do they have like a cutoff it's like if you're at week 55 and you fail a test you go back to week one yeah oh yeah and then say you fail it again or you fail a different test in the other one 
And it's not like, cause they have one time fail test and they had very few, but they had a couple two time fail tests. And I failed one of those two time fail tests. So I was lucky I only failed that one and I did it once. And then the second time I took it, I passed. So I didn't have to restart and I was so happy because I did not want to restart. So is this a, is this a course that has both practical like classroom and or lab and um, didactic or lecture tests? Like, are you tested? Yes. Oh, okay. I just, the last person I had on the podcast, my friend Dave was a aviation tech uh, electronics technician for the coast guard. Oh, yeah. And he talked about that same type of thing. You had to get a hundred on everything. Otherwise you got rolled back. And he was talking yes. about breaking down circuit boards. Yeah. And they're hard. Like, like when, I mean, I can't like say for detail, but there would be like little diagrams of like six parts and you had to memorize those parts because you have no text. You have no notes, nothing. You can't look at anything like nothing. And a lot of military tests, they allow you to have like your own notes, but you can't have any of that. You have to remember everything. And if you miss like one little part, that's your one X and say their and their failing rate was like, I mean, their failing rate was low, but as far as the score you had to get, you had to get like an 80. You couldn't yeah. get like anything lower. Usually it's like a 70 or 75, but no. Yeah. And that's one of the funny things that I've noticed uh, with Corman. It was, I, I think the cutoff when I went through was around that 80, 75, 80% on all tests um, that people think dumb people join the military. Oh yeah. No, yes. No, there no. are dumb people in the military, yes. but in the majority vast majority of, of the MOSs, you have to know your shit and you have to know it well. And, and the biggest thing about that, you saying that, is that a lot of people thought dumb people were the infantry. And a lot of the infantry guys are, are smarter than smart, a lot yeah. of the other people. Yeah, I, I came to realize that, especially with the Marines I deployed with. That they, Yeah, there, there was a lot of intelligence. The downside with the Marine Corps, and I love them to death, is they get that, that rank dogma a little too much. And the smart guy who may be a PFC may not want to speak up. Yeah, but you know, so you get over to Fort Hood. It's I'm going to say a high tension uh, just because of what had happened. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, did you find that like just the whole base was on pins and needles? Were they working to try to figure out what had happened? Well, at that point, I think because it had already been several months past by the time I got there. Um, they just had everything in place, what everything was going to be. And everywhere you went, like it was like ID checks type stuff. Um, but I think I was there, I got there in summer. So July, um, and it was like 2010 and then right pretty much, I think it was like a month after I got there, then I find out that we're deploying. But then I also came down on orders to go to my phase two of my BNOC, um, which is an advanced leader course um, for NCOs. And um, I had already did, by this time I was a sergeant, um, an E5. And when I went to, before I left Korea, I did, um, uh, got, became sergeant then when I went into my uh, school for 35 November, um, I went to a promotion board 
because at this phase in your career, when you're a junior enlisted, they have it timed out where once you hit a certain point of years, then you can go to a promotion board. And it's based off of how you do in the board, whether they make you promotable or not. And then once you make your sergeant, then it's based off of um, physical, like uh, proof. So any awards, any certificates, um, what your records show, any schools that you've been to, they give you points based off of that. And so I got, I finished my BNOC phase one in um, Germany while I was a sergeant. And then um, when I left and went and did my promotion board, I went to BNOC phase two right before we deployed because I had came down on assignment and my, my first line supervisor was like, you're not going to be not phase two, we're getting ready to deploy. Well, my Sergeant Major stepped to him and said, no, any NCO that comes down on BNOC orders, they're going to their school. So I was super happy because that only helps my career. And I got promoted to Staff Sergeant right when I got to Fort Hood, just before um, I went to BNOC phase two. Oh, nice. So with that, um, I can tell you that the Navy, you know, E1 to E4 are like in in my field, they're the people doing the majority of the patient care. They're doing the majority of of all hands-on work. E5s do a little bit of supervision. E6s really kind of get stepped back. They become the LPOs or the section leaders. Very similar. As a brand new MOS for you going in as a E6, was that transition hard? No, not for me because it was still an administrative field. And for me, at that point, I learned that I am not gonna know everything. And there was a lot of specialists that were very knowledgeable that I knew I could go to and be like, hey, how do you do this? So I would go to those younger soldiers and give them that sense of responsibility to say, hey, teach me this. I know I'm, I don't rank you, but I don't care. You've been doing this for a couple of years. You know what, I know what school teaches you, but you know what reality is happening. And you can show me those skills. Nice, okay, yeah, because I've learned that from so many different mentors in the past that um, you have to be open to that. And there's a lot of people who get up to that E5, E6 level who can't, who have to show that they think they know everything, oh, even yeah. if they don't. So that's good to hear that you were humble enough to be able to do that. So, oh yeah. Like, um, and actually when I first got to Fort Hood, I wasn't assigned to, well, I was, I was assigned to, a, a same thing happened to me in Fort Hood that happened in Korea. I was assigned to a company. And then the next day they said, no, you're going to brigade. So I got moved to the brigade um, instead of being in a company. And I was assigned to the S2 shop in the brigade um, instead of being assigned to an actual like S2 that dealt with like the, the signal intel aspects and being in a space where they deal with our job. I was dealing with operation side S2. Okay, so were you like reporting was your S2 part of like a infantry brigade then versus yes. an intelligence? Brigade? We were the um, fourth infantry division. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so how was that conversation with your family um, 
at that point in time, hey, uh, I'm going somewhere. And yeah, well, um, by that time, my mother passed away uh, when I was in Germany. Uh, it was in 2008. So I was in Germany for a year and a, a month. Um, and she passed away because she was sick, like for childhood, a lot of it. Um, so in Korea, I actually had to go on emergency leave twice. In Germany, I think I went on emergency leave like two two times and then the third time was when she had passed away um and actually in germany was when i went through a lot of the abuse and trauma that i that triggered me starting my nothing profit right so, and i was, I was um, going to ask you about that when we got to that because i know that that yeah. i had a feeling that that was going to play a role in what made you start that yeah and um so I, of course, I called my family and told them I was going to deploy. And, and I mean, reaction wise, as far as what they gave me was, okay, be safe. I love you. I love you. I love you. Um, when I was deployed, I talked to my sister like once a week, um, which wasn't allowed. Um, <laughs> uh, you're not supposed to use those phones to call every week. Um, oh, okay. I know the I know the ones you're talking about. Um, and uh, I wrote letters to my best friend. Um, and I mean, my sister really was, and I emailed my sister too. She was she was my only regular communication uh, while I was deployed. So, um with keeping with the previous time when you went to the infantry side with the admin shop, how was the, how many females went with you guys downrange? Oh, when we deployed, I mean, the whole unit basically, except okay. for like those 20 people, like the whole division went. Oh, okay. So it was a whole All division. the 4th Infantry Division went. Okay. And I don't think we said where, so was it Iraq or Afghanistan at that point? So we were in Iraq. Um, we were in Mosul. So okay. Cosmores. Really nice, beautiful area, I hear. Yeah, you know. I, I, I know Fallujah pretty well. Never made it all the way up to Mosul. You know, besides all the bombs. <laughs> so was this was this with uh, ISIS or was this during the pullout? Um, it was the OIF to OEF. So we were like the last year before, and we initiated the pullout. Oh, okay. So how was, uh, did you guys have to do any um, outside the wire stuff in your? Did... Well, as far as my MOS, no, but I did go outside the wire a few times um, because I had to travel to the different, because I, before I left, um, I told you I had to go to the BNOC phase two, which was at Fort Huachuca in Arizona. Well, when I came back, instead of me, them wanting me to deploy immediately, they wanted me to do a week training for security officer, which is a SARM first class position. And me as a staff sergeant, I'm like, oh, yes, yes. give it to me because <laughs> that only advances me. <laughs> so I did the training because they didn't have anybody else in the entire division that was trained on SSO besides a warrant officer that was already down there. And they needed him to go to a different area. So... Um, um, uh, my babies might be up. Um, so, uh, we might have to pause this. Not a problem. <laughs> um, but my, uh, 
There was every, all the females were there, but I have to pause if you don't right. mind. Not a problem. I'm going to hit pause. All right. So we're back from that quick little break. And you were telling me you took the position as a security officer. Yeah. So they had me do the training. And um, then when I came back, they were like, okay, so um, you're going to deploy and you're going to be the senior on the small group that was going, um, but you're going, you guys are going to deploy with another unit that's deploying. So we deployed and it was funny because we were on the plane and me and the unit, one of the, it was a young specialist and a lady, the stewardess was coming and, and I was like, Hey, are we able to meet the, um, pilots? And, um, she was like, uh, I'll ask. So she said, no, um, oh, well, she said we might not be able to meet the pilots, but she would let us act like, you know, carry the trays like we were going to be stewardess or whatever. So me as a staff sergeant, I'm like, cool. Um, and I pull one of the specialists from the other company and I was like, Hey, you want to do it? And he was like, sure. So we pretended like we were uh, holding the trays and I got a picture with the pilots too. Nice. And so then we deploy, I get down range and they're like, all right, so you're the SSO, you're in charge of all of the uh, divisions, um, security facilities, so SCIFs. Um, and uh, I also want you to sign for all these computers. You're going to be in charge of all this equipment and all this stuff. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. Um, <laughs> I'm not signing for any of this equipment until I see it. So I'm going to go and and see all the equipment I'm signing for. <laughs> so then Yikes. I'm deployed in Iraq. <laughs> so um, I take it you did a lot of convoys uh, to go, or not maybe not convoys, but a lot of hops to get to different areas. To I check did out. a lot of hops. I did a lot of the, the Blackhawks, which was super fun because that was the first time I ever rode in one. <laughs> but so, I did three um, convoys. How were your, how, okay. So how was, how is um, armoring up and going from I've trained on my weapon to I may actually have to use this and set going condition one, which is round in the chamber yeah. for that first it, time? So every time, it wasn't just the first time, every time was like, OMG. Like I want to, I want to cuss. Um, go ahead. <laughs> like, oh shit, it's about to go down. We're about to leave this facility, and there's a possibility that these people are going to shoot at us. Um, and in the convoys, I was on two of them. I was on the left window uh, behind the driver, and so all I see next to me is the gunner who's standing in the middle, and then. Um, I'm looking out the window, like nervous, looking around, making sure to stay alert because that's what I'm trained to do. And then in one of the convoys, I was in an MRAP. So we're enclosed. We don't see anything outside. All we see is light and feet from the person that's the gunner. And we see them rotating on their, their gunning station. And so like it was, I think it was, more fearful in the MRAP where you couldn't see, but also at the same time, you're like, well, I'm safer here than versus a Humvee. But at the same time, it was still scary. Yeah. No, I, I, I feel you've done and way that was, too many rides. 
Yeah, and that was just in the convoys. Like, on the Blackhawk, like, you could get shot out of the sky. And, like, it was like, man. And at one point, they had to do um, maneuvers because we had to fly to Turkey. Um, and at that point, Turkey was really bad area to fly into. Oh, really? Yeah. Was it... So what, what was... Um... Did you guys get indirect fire at your main base or yes. was it pretty quiet by then? Oh no, we got some, like, um, there was a time I was walking from the chow hall, um, and there was a unexploded ordinance that I walked right past. Oh God. Yeah. And if I, I didn't think at the time, um, to report it or anything because I probably was freaking out, but, um, I probably should have told someone about it. Did you did you um, consciously recognize that it was a, a like, piece of ordinance? Not at first sight. At first sight, it was kind of like, oh, what's that? And then, um, then when we got closer, it was me and a friend, and we were like, oh shit, like uh, let's get away because this can explode at any time. Damn. And then um, another time, one of our connexes and all the contents exploded, like got blown up on. Yeah. It was like maybe 20 feet, 50, no more than 50 feet from where we were at. Oh, wow. Damn. Yeah. So how long were you guys over there? A year? Yeah, a year. So did you get used to it at all? Um, did it get repetitive? Um, I wouldn't say I got used to it. Um, I mean, it did it. Because for me, it was a lot different, I feel like, because my schedule kept changing. Because I had so much that I was in charge of that they moved my times around a lot. Like, I would have to be up at, like, 5 in the morning to do briefings in the um, uh, command center. And then I would also have to stay up until 10 o'clock at night to do another briefing in another area. So I didn't. Maybe I just can't remember. I was sleep deprived. So um, I feel like my hours were just crazy. Did you guys have not only was I doing like security officer management for the skiffs and everything, but they also wanted me to do my regular job too. Oh, so you, so they were saying basically the security management was a additional, additional duty. (laughs) Yeah. And then my first sergeant also had me do your analysis uh, training. So I was the one who had to collect all the urinalysis, like, and I had the NCOs like, okay, go watch them, go watch them, bring it back. And I had to do all that too. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> yeah. Cause especially yeah. the urinalysis, that's always a, your analysis in, in Iraq, yeah. what, were they thinking people were like smoking out or something? Well, um, one, was- every time you came back from your R and R, um you had to get tested um and two they ran did random testing each month which they only did like maybe five to ten people oh okay that you know that's one thing that we need to reform is some of the use policies because i hate to say it if you got high in dubai wow that was not meant to rhyme at all (laughs) on your r&r by the time you flew back in it's out of your you're not high anymore yeah I, I don't get me started on alcohol and weed because alcohol. Well, and we worse. actually we actually kicked uh, a couple people out for um, using steroids while we were deployed. 
Now I do know steroids did become a big issue uh, around oh, yeah. that time. And yeah. I know it from some seals that I was reading up on that were, you know, people were having, doing massive amounts of steroids while in country and having some roid rage issues. I think there was a, oh, yeah. I think that there around that time, I think there was a army guy in Afghanistan who killed a whole bunch of civilians. Oh, wow. And they traced it back to like, he was on steroids. Ro roid raging basically. Yeah. Well, we had a guy, he was like smaller than me that all of a sudden while we were deployed got big and like, they were always at the gym, which was cool. You can be always at the gym. I was always at the gym, but to get big and like all of a sudden have like huge muscles like this, like you're like, come on guy, something, yeah. you're doing something. So were, were you, was your base a, um, a hard base? I don't know if you ever made it down to Al-Assad or to Camp Fallujah while you were there. Um... Which were the bigger hard bases? We we went to one of them when we were leaving before we went uh, through um, Kuwait. Was it a like, big airfield? Uh, I think so. But when, okay. I mean, our base was a hard, hard spot, like didn't move. It was a big, large space. Um, but there was a lot of installations that a lot of our skiffs were at that were smaller that I flew into with the Blackhawks and we were closing down those, those and all of them were oh, okay. moving out um, I, before we left. So, Oh, I was just going to ask, did you guys have, so did you guys have any amenities at your main base? We had a huge gym um, and we actually had two different uh, gyms because one was like just a workout and stuff. And then one was like the basketball courts. Um, we had a space that they made for soccer. Like we played indoor soccer there. Um, we did a, a basketball turn, uh, not basketball, boxing tournament thing. Like, um, but mostly it was just gyms. And then we had like a little market on the, the installation. Okay. Yeah. I was just being curious as far as, um, for a year long deployment, being out at a FOB would probably suck, but oh, yeah. having, having some of those small amenities makes it a little bit easier to go by. Oh yeah. And our food, like the, the cafe, oh, the cafeteria was the best. <laughs> did you have the, uh, did you have the Filipino ladies cooking for you? Um, I'm not sure if they were Filipino, but I know that food was good. We yeah. had uh, we had a little salad, like Caesar salad, chicken salad station. We had like ice cream station. <laughs> so. in, in Fallujah, we had like the UN of, of contractors. There were the Filipino ladies and the Filipino guys who ran the DFAC. Uh, the Ugandans were doing security. It was really bizarre being over there and seeing all these different uh, nationalities just helping oh, yeah. out. So when I you guys thinking about it, I think we went to Fallujah for like a training for a week. Okay. Like I had to do my, I think it was when I did equal opportunity um, uh, training to become the EO rep in my um, division. They had you do that in country. Yeah, well, it was, they, I did it before we deployed, but they had us do a special one for deployment scenarios to be able to be able to do this stuff in country too, because it was a little different, but it wasn't really different. Huh. Um, but I also talked the head EO rep 
into letting me stay for the extra day of training because it was only supposed to be for Starburst classes. But I was like, please, <laughs> I want the training. It'll help me. So. So when you guys finished up that mission, how did you feel about uh, your time over there? I was glad it was over. I was glad to be back. Um, it was sad coming back and not really having any family there because I wasn't married. Um, and uh, I pretty much when I was coming back, I begged my dad to come to um, Fort Hood because uh, they hadn't really gone anywhere to see me since I had joined the military. And um, that was, I think, what, five years prior. So um, my basic training. So I like begged him to come. He came like two days after we got back, um, which was cool because it was on his birthday because oh, nice. um, we redeployed a couple days before my birthday. So I was like, yes. <laughs> Sweet. So, so did you... Um... Just out of curiosity, did you guys do the Shannon Ireland stop on the way back? We or... did not stop in Ireland. We stopped in Germany. Did you get your drink on? No, we couldn't. Oh, really? No, no. Not on the way back. No. Yeah. My guys were saying, um, because I came back separately than they did, but my guys were saying when they hit Ireland, they all the Marines that were on the plane were able to. I know on the way out, Ireland was the last place that we were allowed to drink. And on the way back, uh, I think, yeah, because they stopped in, I think they stopped in Budapest on the way back to refield and get off the plane, then landed in Ireland and it was like drinks on. Oh, no, we weren't allowed. See, no, they were like, you're still in service. uniform, you can't drink. <laughs> like when we were deployed, we had the near beer um, oh. for, <laughs> for a Super Bowl. And actually, they let us have one real beer on Super Bowl. Oh, nice. They, they had let us, cause we showed up in October and on the Marine Corps birthday, they gave everyone one real, one real beer. Yeah. And of course you had some guys who were like, well, you're not 21. You can't drink. Give me your beer. And so some people oh, yeah. had no. six or seven beers. And it was funny. Cause I wasn't a beer drinker. Like I was like, but I'm going to have a beer. <laughs> yeah. Why not? So how was it coming home for you? Um, I mean, it was cool. Like I, I was like online trying to find an apartment because I didn't have anybody, you know, coming back to, and I didn't have anything really. I didn't, all my stuff was in like storage, including my car. Um, and I mean, at that point I didn't have a lot, so I didn't have, um, furniture or anything. Um, so when I came back, I was like, what am I going to do? And I went online and searched for apartments. I messaged, emailed the lady back and forth for a few times. And she actually worked with me to where I could pay her the following day because we were going to get back late, so late at night, that um, she left the key under the mat for me. Um, and I was able to get into the apartment. And I think I went, my friend that happened to get at Fort Hood that I knew from Korea, um, came and got me, um, which was cool, and uh, took me to my apartment. I went to Walmart and got like some sheets and blanket and an air mattress and just went to my apartment and pretty empty. <laughs> Did you sleep for a couple of days? Um, no, because the when they bring us back, we have to go into like a week of like in 
reintegration. So oh, okay. we didn't really get to go like kind of relax until after that. And then after that, it was kind of like, okay, let's sleep and relax and, and chill. <laughs> so how was your whole adjustment period once you got back? Um, well, I realized that I had anxiety and, um, I, I would have panic attacks. Um, and I still even now think about like the fear that I had when I left the, I would leave like the choose to go to, um, the restroom or to the shower, because whenever I had work, my hours were different than everybody else's. So I would always have, I would have a battle buddy that was in my section that lived on the same side as me. Everybody that worked with me lived in other areas in while we were on the cots. So I would always have to veer off. Like if they're walking, they go this way and around and to the right. And I have to go to the left. And so I would always think about that. that and I didn't realize until actually the last year or two that those are like part of my PTSD. And um, so I have that. And then, I mean, I have, I have ankle injuries from deployment. I have fractures in both of my ankles. And mm. Like, so now I've just been dealing with that. But otherwise, as far as like work-wise, I, I always kept my mind straight. I always, I always knew what I needed to do and how I needed to do it. So, what did you, where'd you go after, um, you got back from deployment? Did you stay at Fort Hood or? So no, I didn't. Um, which was funny because you were probably going to say the same thing that everybody says one, they don't like Fort Hood and two, once you get there, you never leave. Um, I, before I came back from deployment, I called my branch manager and asked them to put me on assignment for drill sergeant school. And initially he was like, uh, and then, but I kind of like made my point where one, I was a female, they need female drill sergeants. And two, my MOS isn't hurting. So you can pull me from my MOS and I'll be fine. Um, and so I came down on assignment to go to drill sergeant school. So we came back that September, I came down on assignment to go to drill sergeant school in, I think it was like, March, March, I think I went to drill sergeant school or maybe even February of that next year. So um, my, and when we got back, we ended up getting a new sergeant major. Um, and of course they review all of the, the list of anybody going to any of the schools and they have to approve it. And he is a, he was a prior drill sergeant. So he would always come up to me and be like, what's the drill sergeant creed? And I was like, uh, I don't know that yet, Sergeant Major, because that was before I had went. And I mean, I was always like really good with my PT. I was always a stud, always like people would ask me, I remember in basic training, people would ask me, hey, what's the, um, what is the standard we have to get to pass the PT test? And I would tell them and they'd be like, what? That's really high or really low, like scores. And um, then when we would go check the wall, like the drill sergeant had a post on the wall, I'd be like, oh, my bad. Those are the maxes. <laughs> <laughs> so I never knew the minimums. And even to this day, I don't know the minimums of what you needed to get. Cause I always set higher standards for myself. 
Right on, right on. So how was, uh, I have never done, uh, we call it RDC in the Navy, but I've never, would have never considered doing that school. But what I have seen from friends who went to Marine Corps drill instructor school or documentaries, it sounds like you guys basically go back to a very demented version of boot camp during your schools. Well, no, not, not necessarily, but it was funny before we get there. When I was deployed, I ran into my drill sergeant. How was yeah, that? it was so, and he was my main drill sergeant. Like we had drill sergeant Hamilton and drill sergeant Scott and drill sergeant Scott was deployed too, but he was on another base. And so drill sergeant Hamilton told me where to find him. And I called him and I was like, what's up battle buddy? <laughs> so, so funny. Um, but he was the same rank. He was a sergeant first class at the time. I was a staff sergeant. And I'm sure uh, Drill Sergeant Scott was a sergeant first class now by that point. But when he was a drill sergeant, he was a staff sergeant. So when um, I went to school, school was very similar to basic training. Um, it was basically going through basic training again and them slightly showing you how to instruct someone else to do it because that was the ultimate goal is they want you to be able to teach it to someone else, you know, teach one, uh, see one, teach one, do one. Yeah. Yeah. So did you get any aha moments that you were like, why the hell are we doing this in boot camp?" And then like, Oh, okay. Now this makes sense going through the school. Um, sometimes. Yeah. Like, um, especially when it came to like, uh, hygiene, um, because in basic, you think about it, like I told you, even in the beginning, like when you're in basic training, you're like, these people don't know how to clean themselves. And then in, as a drill sergeant, you learn that some people are never taught by their parents to do that stuff. Really? And so, yeah. Um, so like then when I was a drill sergeant, that I ran into it, actually ran into it, where um, there was a couple female soldiers that that thought standing under the shower water was cleaning your body, not using soap, not using body wash, not even using a rag, just standing under the water was cleaning their body because they were never taught by their parents to clean their body. So um that was something that was like man that i'm i'm glad that i went through that school and then a lot of things actually went all the way back to like my my navy little boot camp because in that boot camp um they gave us like uh etiquette classes and then you come back and when you go through the military and you go through basic training they want you to get your food slide down put your tray down sit down, get your fork, everybody eats at the same time. When you're done, you clean up your tray. So all the etiquette kind of gives you those skills that you need to make sure you do that. Even though I grew up with those from my parents, just learning that in the system, it kind of shows you what they teach people that who may not have that same experience as you. I would have never thought about that, but no, that makes sense. Did they ever, um, 
Did they ever give you, maybe not directly, but did you ever get any insights into some of the crazy time hacks, you know, three minutes to shit, shower, shave is what they used to tell us. Uh, just In my basic, I did because I did it different. <laughs> I mm. snuck around and like, even though they give you the times, they want you like, okay, so you have times that they want you to do everything, but there's also kind of time that they, they aren't around. So if, you know, if they don't see it, then it's not happening. And so what I would do is I would wake up before they would wake us up and I would shower and then I would just kind of lay down until they came in to wake us up and then I would fix my bed. And sometimes we, as the girls in our basic training, oh, we did this in drill sergeant school too. Um, we would make our beds and either sleep on top of the blankets. I went in drill sergeant school, I went and bought a, a twin size air cot. And actually I had it from my deployment. So, um, cause I used it while I deployed, I wasn't gonna sleep on like just a regular bed, um, like a cot, you know? Um, and I put the cot next to my, my bed in drill sergeant school and I would sleep on that and just throw it in the closet when I would leave for the day. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice little hack. So uh, for any person who is thinking about joining the army specifically, what advice would you give them as a drill instructor as far as what's the important stuff? Is it the physical? Is it being open-minded? Is it you're going to get yelled at no matter what, so be prepared? Well, so I think the biggest piece of advice is learn the game. Just like life, like you have to learn the system. There's black and white and they tell you everything you need to do all you have to do is listen to it like they tell you to pick up a piece of paper go pick up the piece of paper sometimes it you can question the stuff but most of the time they're not going to ask you to do anything illegal immoral or unethical and if they do then you can question it or not do it um but really learn the game and just just do it and follow that game because like i actually um I just spoke with one of my soldiers from when I was a drill sergeant and she is now a staff sergeant and she is going to drill sergeant school. And I am so proud of her because she knows the system and she knows the game. One moment, um, one moment, baby. Um, can you sit here and be quiet while mommy talks? Okay. Hey, little guy. So, um, as you got, do you remember which one stood out to you the most? The first class you pushed or the last class you pushed? Which uh, basic training as far as like for my soldiers? Yeah, for your soldiers. Um, no, they all like had so much impact on like my memories of them. It just depended on the individuals in the class because I remember individuals from each of the classes now, if you ask me which class they were in, I couldn't tell you, but I know they weren't all in the same classes together. Um, it's really the people that I, I met. Even, I mean, some of them would be like 42-year-olds, 40, and some would be 17-year-olds oh, that wow. were going back to high school for a, their final year in high school to come back to go to their AIT the next year. So 
there was some really bright kids. I mean, and I say kids, but like I said, some of them were 42 older than me. Um, I was, I was 26 as a drill sergeant. So it was, it, there's a lot. So leaving the, uh, the military, you said that uh, drill sergeant was the last thing that you did. What was your final reason for deciding to get out? I was just tired. Um, you know, when you're in the military, you find that there's a lot of people that care about the soldier and care about people. And I care about people and I care about their lives. Um, and there was too much um, emphasis on mission, mission, mission. And yes, we want to take care of the soldier, but nobody, they weren't taking care of the soldier. And it was just hurting me because that was part of, I found out later that that was part of my anxiety is because when I would say something, it wouldn't get heard. And no matter who I said it to, no matter how far up the chain of command I went, it wasn't getting heard. And so that was, that was a, like, I need to, to, to make a change. And I'm glad I did because that helped me a lot. So as we get into your, um, your nonprofits, I really do want to talk to you about that. What, what was, uh, do you think that we made it to a point in the military where it was fairly, um, gender didn't, or sex didn't really matter. Just those who could do the job could do it. I think that gender, I don't want to say that gender didn't matter. Um, I think it mattered a lot. I think that people just didn't know the process and, and how to manage it. Evan, you can't talk right now. Okay. If you want to watch TV, you can go watch. Do you want something else? Do you want to eat? Do you want something to drink? What's wrong? There's drinks right there, water and milk. Okay. I put them right there for you. Okay. And your cookies up there. You can go eat the rest of the cookie if you want. There's no more in there? Okay, I'll get it. Excuse me a minute. I'm sorry. Not a problem. So as you got out, um, did you see a, or maybe you wouldn't have noticed, but did you see an increase in females becoming interested in doing the infantry thing? Oh, yeah. Like uh, before I got out, there was, uh, I know they had started, like there was a woman that had just been the first woman to do like gone through the airborne train or not, maybe not airborne. Um, I think it was SF. Special oh, the ranger, the, the ranger train. Ranger. Yeah. I think there was one that had did that. Um, and she was the first woman to do it. And then there was another woman who said she wanted to go infantry. So she was like the first female to go through the inter- infantry course. Um, and then, I mean, there was a lot of other women that, that said that they wanted to do it and they thought it would only be fair to open it up to them for the option. So now you get out in what, 2015, 16 ish, 2015. What are you doing between then and when you start your nonprofit? 
So I started right now, I called it Factotum Consulting. Um, and that I started doing event planning in 2012 um, with a um, coordinator in um, South Carolina. And I would do it like very rarely because I mean, with my drill sergeant time, I didn't have a lot of time, but I wanted to learn the system on how to do events and coordinate. Well, that turned into consulting because um, I help people now with so much, so many other things. Like I help, I train people with human resource information systems um, and uh, I do project management, operation management. I give uh, businesses guidance on like the way that they should advertise themselves versus um, maybe someone new doesn't quite know how to speak to customers and clients. So I started doing that. And then last year in, I mean, what year was last? 2020, 2019, I was like, I would always tell my husband up until then, I was like, I want to start a nonprofit. But I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I wasn't sure how I wanted to help people, but I always knew that that's what I want to do. I want to help people. And in 2019, I was like, you know what? I want to do um, a nonprofit for women. And I could, I can't even remember the name that I used, but it was not women for her. And my husband laughed very hard at the name. And <laughs> um, so then last year I was like, women for her. And then the her is healing, empowering, and renew. And I was like, that's perfect. And um, I knew that October was when I like finished the bylaws and wrote all the everything for it. <laughs> so let's talk about the healing part. You had mentioned earlier that you had some trauma yourself back in Germany. Did you see that a lot outside of yourself? So yes. Um, like my, it was my ex-husband, um, while, when I was in Germany, I ended up getting married. Um, and we hadn't known each other for, excuse me, it was less than a year. And, um, I mean, I was young, I was like excited. So we got married and right after we got married, it was like something was triggered or it hit a switch and his whole personality changed. So, I mean, he used to call me ugly. He used to um, put me down. He would tell me, I don't know why I'm with you. Um, I've been with so much better looking and nicer women than you. And I'm, I'm a nice person. I'm a very caring person. Like that's how my family, how my parents raised me. And so like I would reach out to who I thought were friends um, and be like, well, what am I doing? Is there something like I could change about the way I'm doing something. Maybe I'm just not doing it right. Um, but that would get back to him. And then he would come back and like use abusive words towards me. So it was not just verbal and emotional, um, but then it started becoming physical and he yanked me by my arm. He pushed my head and I came like, like this close to hitting my face on the mirror in the bathroom. Um, because he was starting to argue and I didn't want to fight. So I walked away. Well, when I walked away, he did not like that. 
And so he would pull me or, you know, the push. And then um, one time he just, we were getting into a fight and I didn't want to talk anymore. And he punched me in my stomach and I fell to the ground and I was curled up holding my stomach and he was standing over me and he was saying, get up. I didn't even hit you that hard. Um, stop crying. And the only thing that I regret about that situation is that I did not call anybody on him, that I did not tell anybody about the situation because right after he hit me and I wish it didn't take me to the point of him hitting me to leave. But right after he hit me, I was like, I'm done. Nobody will, will hit me. And I had already taken enough. And, um, after that I was like, I'm done. And the next day after that, cause he let ended up leaving that night. Um, I didn't care where he went. He, he ended up leaving. Um, because when I felt it was safe enough, what I did, he, was like a further further enough distance away from me I ran to the room and locked the door um and I just kind of laid on the bed and cried because at that point not only was I going through that abuse but my mother was my mother had died so um I was dealing with the loss of my mother and he was supposed to be the one, you know, there to care for me. And he was the complete opposite. So was he military? Yes. Do you think the command would have done anything at that time? If I would have said something, yes, I do believe they would have. Okay. Um, I mean, I'd like to believe they would have. Do you, do you think from your time in service that um, commands are doing right by people who went through similar things as you? I think, I like to think that they are um, now more so than in the past. Um, I know that there was an instance that um, how true it was, I'm not sure. After my mother passed away and after the abuse that I received, um, get the blanket, baby. I'm sorry. Not a problem. What is wrong? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I so, don't. So um, after there was an incident, I don't know how true it is, but when after my mom had passed away and after um, before he punched me, uh, I had attempted because I was in a sad place. I don't want to say dark place, but I felt alone. I felt like I didn't have anybody and I tried to take my life. Um, and I did it with, uh, some pills. I can't remember the name of them, but I know I took like 23 of the pills. Ooh. Um, but nothing happened like nothing. And it was crazy. So I guess it was just not the right pill. Um, but, uh, I ended up my, he called my chain of command because he had tried to call me and I had went to sleep because I didn't want to talk to him, but I also was take, attempting to take my life. And he called my chain of command. My first line supervisor came, I went to the hospital. They didn't pump my stomach or anything, but they had to keep me in the hospital overnight. And um, because of what happened, they had to bring a battle buddy 
to stay at the hospital with me. And my battle buddy was like, why, why are you letting him like, this isn't you, Christine. Like they talk, they talked to me like, you know, my friend, um, they were like, this isn't you. Like, you're not like this. Like, cause, um, you know, it's taking my life. It's just not me. I love life. I love helping people. I love doing so much. And I'm always a happy person. And, um, so then, um, after that incident happened, I had to go to my chain of command and my husband had taken me. Well, they asked me to step out of the room because they wanted to talk to him. And when he left the room after whatever happened, he was very mad. And I was like, what is wrong with you? Like, I didn't know what happened. Well, he said that they threw him up against the wall and asked him what he did to me. Um, and, uh, so I don't know how true that is, but I like to think that if they knew what he really did, then they would have protected me more. So was he in the same unit as you? No, he was in a different unit. Okay. So I take it you got a divorce after that. Yes. After he hit me, I filed for divorce the next day. So throughout the rest of your career, did you have any, um, issues as far as being a female in what seemed to be pretty male dominated areas? Um, I would say the biggest challenge was when I was deployed. Um, I had, because I told you already that I had, um, a lot of additional duties that were put on my plate. Well, when I was deployed and when I, when I first got there, I had, I had four different people telling me different things to do and that they needed them done right then and there, you know, and I ended up going to my, who I thought was my first line supervisor. And I said, look, I don't have a problem doing my job and you guys know that I can do it, but I need to know who my boss is because this master sergeant saying they're my boss, this captain saying they're my boss, this major is saying they're my boss and you're my boss too. Who do I report to? Because I can't have all of you telling me different things to do and telling me that they're needed, needed now. And then I get in trouble by someone else because I didn't do what they needed. And I had a panic attack, anxiety, everything. I was like bawling when I was telling my boss this. Um, and so they kind of fixed it and, and that, but it was never like, for my opinion, it was never a, you're a female male type scenario. It was, it was just work. I, I know we're hearing, and I, I have a couple of friends that have sadly experienced military sexual trauma. Was that any, was any of those things a reason why you decided to start your nonprofit to help in those fields? Um, I, I, did see while I was a drill sergeant, um, a service member abuse his spouse um, right after a military ball. Um, he drank too much and he was out in public and he hit her in public. Oh, wow. um, yeah, and he lost rank. He And it, the worst part is he was like soldier of the year, soldier of the base. Like he was a good quote unquote soldier, um, minus that flaw. And, um, so I did see that and that a lot of that is yes. Uh, 
because a lot of service members do not know to speak up and, and a lot of them are afraid of that reprisal. Um, I don't know if that was the reason that I didn't speak up. Um, I don't know if I thought about it at the time. Um, I just know that I wish I would have spoke up and said something um, because I ended up seeing him later in my career at Fort Hood and he was like the same rank as me and all that kind of stuff. And in my head, I was like, he shouldn't be the same rank as me, but. Wow. That's, that's a crazy thing. So with your nonprofit, um, how is it doing after this last year, the pandemic and everything being shut down? I know you're in Florida where it's been a lot more open. Well, um, it really, the pandemic doesn't really, it hasn't had an effect on my nonprofit. Um, I did start it later in the year last year. So I started in October. Um, so it's still fairly new, I like to say. Um, but anybody who needs assistance from us can reach out by phone or email um, through Facebook, through Instagram, and we can provide any of those resources because all the resources are um, our phone numbers to uh, like, you can get therapy assistance, you can find resources uh, through those phone numbers to get out of your situation if you're in it. Um, or if you don't know where to go for those help, help like uh, to get out, then they provide you those, those locations for safe spaces. Um, we also do a safe space chat every week. Um, I know for me, having a space where women who have gone through something similar, not necessarily the same thing, but similar, and you talk about your situation, um, one, it makes it easier for you to talk about. Um, it helps with any kind of trigger points, as you would say, or trigger words that may have caused you to feel that pain again. Um, it helps you because once you talk about it more, it allows it to kind of ease that pain. And every time I talk about my story, I feel a little bit. Um, even when now I can talk about it without crying and people are like, wow, like, you're like, you don't even seem affected. But really, I've told my story so much now that that now it's just easy. Like it doesn't affect me anymore because I'm, I'm past it. I'm better. And I'm helping others get past their pain and become that power powerhouse that we are. So is that the empowering part of her? Yes. Empower. Yeah. You want to get your power back. And whether that's through uh, sexual abuse that you had occurred. Um, I have some sex education um, instructors that have that information and knowledge um, mindfulness to help you with your mind space um, mindfulness meditation I particularly particularly like um, uh, transcendental meditation um, it's like a, a different kind of meditation that that you kind of hum on the outside but it also helps like uh, more mentally for me so yeah, I think I, I'm noticing a lot more of my military friends getting into mindfulness and meditation. I yeah. do, I do a, a little four minute practice when I wake up every morning 
And yeah, you're right. It, it does set your day, especially if you do it first thing in the morning, it sets your day off to a really good start. Yeah. And affirmations are really good too. Um, yeah. Especially changing your, the way you think about things. A lot of that helps. Yeah. And journaling I've noticed is even yeah. though God forbid someone finds mine, um, they're going <laughs> to need like three different levels of translation to read my handwriting. <laughs> but, but there is something very healing about actually having a pen to paper as opposed to typing. I've noticed. Yeah. Now, with the last letter, the R, the resilience. Renew. Renew, sorry. I, it's okay. It's a, TB, um, it's a TBI. No, it's okay. Um, renew your spirit, your mind, your body. So it's all really encompassing with um, the whole process. The healing, you have to be able to heal in order to be renewed, to feel that end result. What, what do you see the future of, of your nonprofit being? Um, well, because right now I did start it here in Tampa, Florida, um, but I want it to be global. I don't want it to just be, I want to find those resources in Europe, in Asia. I want to be able to help everybody everywhere um, because it's not just people in the U.S. that are going through this, especially during like COVID, like where the numbers increased. Um, so it's just, it's just about getting the word out and, and being able to come to you and say, Hey, um, you don't happen to know the number for a crisis center, do you? And knowing that all they have to do is dial two one one and that's your local crisis center in the U S so oh, what in, yeah, what in the UK or what in Asia is very similar to that, you know? So that, that's what I want. Okay. So do you see a, um, do you see a future where you're going to have retreats, like in-person retreats and meetups? Yeah. And I've actually talked about um, a couple of those. I don't know. I mean, that's how we met Clubhouse. Um, yeah. uh, on Clubhouse, I've talked about doing a couple of retreats and whether we limit, like we, we limit the amount to like 10 people initially and, and have, be able to have our own spaces in like rooms in an airbnb and being close to like a park or something um that we can go and do like yoga sessions mindfulness um do some of those educational informational courses um and just have that space to kind of be free and and be able to find what part of you needs to heal right now um what do you need to work on now so what do you see it also in this future? Do you see a place where you're married, um, you had your trauma before, and maybe your husband or if you were single, your boyfriend doesn't, maybe he knows about it, but doesn't know what triggers you. Do you see a place for males in some of these females' lives to get some education? Oh, yes. Like um, any, any man that has ever come for advice or come into my safe space uh, chats, um, they're welcome also. I mean, Women For Her is geared for women 18 and up, but I wanna be able to provide those resources for everyone because all the resources that I have are not just for women. Women are a high factor because they're the majority of the ones who are willing to report. There are men that report also, but but the numbers are way lower than, than the women that report. I guess I, I was going for um, more of she's been through this trauma and 
pushing her to speak about it if she's not ready. To learn how to help. Yeah, to, to learn how to be there and try not yeah. to walk over sensitive spaces without realizing you're triggering something. Well, and that's one thing about the resources too. Um, yes, I want to hold those spaces and those courses for that also. But a lot of the resources and the phone numbers, if, if say even me as a woman, I'm not the one going through the trauma or the depression or the abuse, um, I can call those lines and I can find out how I can help that person who is. But the biggest thing about helping the person who is, is one, letting them know that you acknowledge what they're going through, especially if they've shared that. But two is no, letting them know that you're there. Like you're always there and, and always like mention that you don't have to say, Hey, I know you're going through this. I'm here for you. Just say, Hey, I'm here for you. If you need to talk. Um, and, and that is a big thing that a lot of the people that, that go through these trauma, this abuse, is they feel alone. They feel like they don't have someone to go to and those resources are there for, for them to be able to go to, but having those close family or close friends also there is, is very important. Yeah, definitely. And I, I know I was listening to a podcast this morning and, um, they were talking about relationship issues. And one of the things that the female host and her, uh, female guest brought up to the male guest was sometimes it's hard talking to guys because guys, whether they realize it or not, want to fix things mm-hmm. instead of just sit and listen. And yeah. And that's actually one thing I learned early in my, my current relationship. We've been together eight years, uh, married now. And one thing I told him, I would say probably the second or third year was, Hey, sometimes I just want you to listen. I don't want you to fix anything. I don't want your help. I just want you to listen to me because I'm angry about something. So, and it may not be what he did. It could have been something else that happened in my day. So are you getting positive response from um, veterans, uh, female veterans, say the VA? Are you able to work with them? Um, I am able to work with them. I haven't like, I haven't had a lot of reach out from necessarily female veterans. and if they are veterans, uh, they're not telling me they're veterans. So the females that have reached out, um, they tell me one most recently said that, um, she was referred to my page. Um, and I was the resource that she needed because she was an abuse victim. And I said, well, I can provide you with resources. Um, and I also hold a safe space chat if you ever would like. And then I provided her the resources and told her that she could reach out if she ever needs to, um, to take partake in the resources. Well, I'm definitely going to post on a couple of groups that I know that have a, a pretty big veteran senior enlisted community, your page, because I, I think what you're doing is really, really cool. Well, thank you. Um, did I give you, I don't know if I gave you my website because I don't know. I'm I think actually looking at it right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because I had your, just, I just popped it up. Like I think the, the week we had like scheduled everything, I finalized my website and I'm actually going to add on um, a, pa- uh, a page on there um, with all the resources and the information. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. It's a great website. I like it. It's thank kind you. of the Picture carousel has been running off the corner of my eye. You'll see me look over the other monitor real quick. (laughs) 
But um, I want to thank you for coming on. This was really cool. Well, and, thank you so much for having me. And I, you know, I really hope you keep the clubhouse thing up. There's something, there's something about that app that I think is hopefully going to change stuff. There's something about hearing yeah. someone's voice. I really think that that clubhouse is a game changer. Like I told my husband, I said, our lives are going to change and this year is going to be amazing. And it's already amazing. Like everything that we have uh, in our lives that's happened and, and we're just like, it's just great. I think everybody that is on it and anybody who's not on it needs to get on it. So, yeah. well, I think they need, well, what they really need to do is lift the uh, invite only thing. Right. And you know what, if you have guests or if anybody that's listening wants an invite, reach out. I have, I have some extra invites. So, so do us a favor, tell us where we can find you. So um, my nonprofit women for her is www.womenwomenforh.e. Oh, wait, no, sorry. H-E-R.org. <laughs> no dots in the her. Um, but womenforher.org. Um, you can find me on Facebook, uh, women at women for her. Um, the Facebook is, you do have the dots between the H and the E. And then I'm also on Instagram, uh, women for her, uh, at women for her. And I'll post all of that in the show notes. And thank you so much, Christine. I'm going thank to. Thank you. And I'm so glad that, uh, we could finish this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to stop the recording. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com, on Instagram, The Modern Ronin, on Twitter, at TommyChase01, and you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it would be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.